0: Guys, I've told this story before, but bear with me. So, you know, my wife's a great patriot and she's kind of a what, what a doodle dandy. What's the I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we were at uh we were at a ceremony for our daughter's graduation from nursing school here at Washburn University, and I can't remember why but in that ceremony, they asked all the veterans to rise and be recognized. And so Kathy stood and rose with them. And she's not a veteran, you see. But she was born on Veterans Day. And she was trying to give the veterans a standing ovation, but it's been a funny ha-ha in our family ever since. But <laughs> Kathy's a, a veteran, so... <laughs> So her birthday was yesterday, and she is a, a great patriot, too. Yeah. <laughs> and did you notice that Kevin Wipperman was double-dipping on that applause, by the way? <laughs> did you? <laughs> and Steve Steve Iliff could have as well. Yeah, Coast Guard and Army, I believe, and Kevin was Army and uh, Navy. Yeah, where he started out. So, hey, you know, and... Isn't it great when, we're, when we thank, when we take a moment to thank people that have served us, and usually without any real recognition, right? Because most of life we're going along and we're serving people and we're trying to do right as the Lord calls us to. And usually we're doing that without maybe thanks from anybody, right? So a little bit of appreciation, I think, goes a long way. Okay, well with that, let me move on to the message. Uh, this is a real picture of a real family on vacation And uh, that's why I used it. I liked it. Three siblings there. You guys, I don't know if you have a family history of doing this or not, where you pile in the car and you you head down the road. And and it's probably a long drive to get where you're going, right? And so one of the things that's typical to do is to get your good book and uh, put that up in front of your face and read away. And that's what those kids are doing. But isn't it interesting if you're in the car and your face is in the book, your world is consumed, your attention is consumed in the book in front of your face, right? But your reality is changing. Where you're at in the world is changing as you go along, because you're in a moving vehicle. So we get caught up in the moment by the book in front of our face, but our reality is changing as we're zooming down the road. And often for us, we get so tied up in the things, right? The present, what's going on in my life right here, Right now, the story that is my life, that we forget that we're in the family van and we're, we're tooling down the road to an ultimate reality, to a destination at the end of our journey. And so we want to make sure that we're queuing in to where God is taking us, and that we're on a trip also, and we may be focused on what's immediately in front of our lives, the cares, the needs, what's going on, what do we need to be about, all those which are fine, right? We just don't want to forget that we're part of a greater story than the one that's going on in front of our face. So, if you remember, a few months ago we went through the book of Ephesians, and we said from Ephesians 1.11 that the end to which all things are moving is that God is going to subject everything to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That the big picture for us, guys, is not today's lunch. It's not tomorrow's work. It's not next week or next month or next year's vacation. The end to which all things are moving the bus on which you and I are riding or the family van, the end of all things, the destination to which we are going is Jesus Christ's appearing, His setting up His kingdom on earth, and then Him establishing His eternal kingdom in a new heaven and new earth. That's the ride we're on. But it's really easy to forget that in the moment because there's so much going on. And guys, the day and the time in which we live, we are bombarded by opportunities, crazy opportunities, Digital, otherwise, we're invested in one thing and another, and we forget that God's taking us someplace. We have a destination. It's not a vacation as such, but it's our eternal home, and it's what God is ultimately up to. So we're going to start a short series uh, this morning called Awaiting the King. And what we're going to do is we're going to use the books of Judges, Ruth, and first and part of 2 Samuel to look at what God did about 3,000 years ago when He brought in a king, that that is, there was a destination in a a sense for the nation of Israel that God was bringing in a king. And he, He lets us know in those stories what He's up to because He keeps referring to some things. And He shows the need for something other than the judges and the priesthood. He shows the nation of Israel's fallen apart. And He uses language by which we can't miss the point that something's amiss in Israel because a king hasn't arrived yet. And not just any king, but the king of his own choosing. And so as we work through these books just for the few weeks going up to Christmas, that's what we'll see. And in those stories, of course, the king that God was preparing the nation for and the nation for the king, both directions, was King David. But all of that is meant to be a template for us of something bigger and something greater. David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, his physical descendant, coming in and ultimately establishing that kingdom that God says will never end. That's where we're headed. Now, Christmas is upon us. Have you guys been on Wanamaker last week? The, you know, there is no Black Friday anymore. There's Black November or something. Seriously, that's the news. It's not a day anymore. People are doing Black Friday sales now. We, went on, we were on Wanamaker last night. have supper for kath's birthday and it was a zoo it's crazy so people are thinking about christmas at least in the commercial sense the incarnation and i'm not being a grinch here and talking about this we we want to remember christ in the incarnation not a bad thing it's a good thing it's not commanded in scripture though you know that remembering jesus birth is not commanded in scripture now we remember in in his death his his burial and resurrection right at the lord's supper that's commanded. And the other thing that's commanded in Scripture, and it's shown throughout the New Testament, is that we're supposed to be anticipating, looking forward to, waiting for His appearing. That's commanded and it's repeated time after time after time after time in the New Testament. But you know what we tend to do? Here's the book of our life. And we forget we're on a journey and that our hearts are actually supposed to be engaged in the destination more than the ride. And so what we want to do is at least a little bit, is develop a sense of we're anticipating Jesus' return, His kingdom on earth, and then His eternal kingdom that He'll set up, and that we'll be in forever, right? If we're Christ's, we're going to be with Him, we'll be like Him forever. It doesn't get any better than that. So that's the journey we're going to be taking, looking at the Old Testament to talk about where God's taking us in the future. And really, if you look from Genesis 3.15 and forward, that's the, it's called the first... Uh, use of the gospel the proto evangelium where god tells adam and eve that one of her descendants will come and will crush satan he'll be the victor and that was the first promise and through the rest of the scripture right till you get to revelation 22 what do you see you see the descendant of david and eve sitting on a throne over a new heaven and new earth you see the ultimate fulfillment of that promise so everything we do your life and mine And for the millennia of history we've got on the earth, guys, the the end has always been the same. It's Jesus appearing, His establishing His kingdom on earth, and then His eternal kingdom to come. This morning's a little bit of a downer because we're starting with the need that is brought up in the book of Judges to show Israel that they needed a king, that something was amiss. If I can get this right, this is multi-phasic and I am not. Let's see if I can. I always forget. You know, there's a little pointer on this. And maybe it's here. Yeah. So, oh, sorry, here. (laughs) So, so, yeah. Thanks. (laughs) You know, did you know that one of the reasons people leave churches, we found this out in a study, Larry shared with us the other day, is because churches are inauthentic. Did you know that? And so last week when Bill blew the last song, do you remember that? Were you here for that? And he's just like, I'm 61, you know, I'm sorry. And start over. It was like people will never think we're inauthentic. And that's going on this morning too. So (laughs) right here, right here, Dan, yeah, thanks guys. Dan right there is shouldered underneath Ephraim and it's next to Benjamin and Judah. And that's where this first story, the story of Judges with Samson is going to come into play. Just for a little bit of... uh, context if you don't remember the stories real briefly and basically this morning is walking very quickly through several stories so put your thinking caps on but if you remember back in the day when israel was in servitude in egypt and god sends them moses moses delivers them through the exodus their signs and wonders and for 40 years they wander right and he takes them right to the threshold of the land of promise and he dies because god says you're not going in right but who who leads them in That's his protege, right? So Joshua leads them into the land of promise. And it says very clearly, and you can see the division of the land by the tribes there, it says clearly in the book of Joshua that as long as Joshua was there and was leading them, they were actually following God. They were taking possession of the land. They were fighting the battles God commanded them to. They're going in, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and they're worshiping Yahweh. But it's also very clear, as soon as you broach the book of Judges, the next book that as soon as Joshua and his generation died, guess what they did? They forsook Yahweh. They embraced idolatry. And what do you get for 400 years, about 400 years in the book of Judges? You get this downward spiral. It's, one, it's the same thing, just repeated over and over and over again. There's 12 judges in the book of Judges. And the scenario is this. So we, we're in the land. We're God's people. We're in covenant with Him. We do what He says. He blesses. That's the deal. But we turn away from Him. And we do so severely. And so God uses the nations around Israel's tribes to oppress them, to discipline them, to spank them, if you will, until they get so miserable that they they cry out to God, God, show mercy. We want to come back to you. We want to repent. And so then God would send a judge and He would deliver the people from their oppressor. But what you find as the story goes through the book, 21 chapters, is that the the nation is slowly, they're not just, it's not like the Dow Jones, you know, where the markets go up and down, but they generally trend up. It's not even the Dow Jones negative. It's a spiral. The same thing going on, but the spiral just keeps getting lower and lower and worse and worse. And that's where Samson comes in. So he's the last of the judges in the book of Judges. And he doesn't appear so much a judge in the sense of God's man, though he is. He looks like an anti-judge because he is so fallen and so out there. And you'll see this just here in a point by point. So for 400 years that's going on and God sends judges and that brings us to the life of Samson. Now, I want to read this passage because I want to be clear that just as Israel remained God's covenant people, Samson was God's judge. No matter what his life looked like, he was God's choice to judge and to deliver and to lead Israel. So, you've got the story here in Judges 13. There was a man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites. We saw where they lived on the map there. Whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, had no children. Remember, generally, when God promises a child to someone in the Bible, it's the child of promise is significant. So Isaac, Jacob... John the Baptist, Jesus himself. Samson's going to be a special guy because he's, he's here by God's special enabling. His wife was barren, had no children, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Nazarite's an interesting thing there. It simply means he's devoted to God in a special way. So nothing from grapes, no produce of the grapevine, nothing unclean, and he doesn't cut his hair. You'll see that in other portions of the Old Testament where someone's specially dedicated to God for a period of time. Well, that was true from for Samson from conception onward. Think of John the Baptist a little bit. It continues and says, The woman bore a son and called his name Samson. The young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. When you read this story, the beginning of Samson's life, we, we cannot avert this, right? Samson is God's man. Child of promise. The Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. This is God's guy, right? Starts so well. What does it look like, though? So four times in the story we're told, the Spirit of God comes on him, empowers him to defeat the Philistines. There's two occasions where we know Samson prays to God very distinctly. He's thirsty one time, there's no water. Kind of like Israel in the wilderness. He says, Lord, I need some water. And it says God opens the ground, just like He opened the rock in the wilderness. Opens the ground and gives him water. Answers his prayer directly. Later, perhaps more famously, the end of his life he asked god for strength to take down a, a philistine building and die in the defeat of his enemies and god answers that prayer too so you see this guy on the front end god's guy child of promise everything looks good until you read the stories of his life i think these are on your study sheet by the way though the details may not be judges 14:1, the first story that brings samuel he's active in it is he's asking for his parents to get him a wife He's not waiting for his father to get a wife on his behalf. That would have been the norm. He's asking, Dad, go get me this woman. And this woman is a Philistine. She's one of the people of the land. Now, commentators argue on this a little bit. But Jews usually marry Jews. Because God says, if you marry people of the land, they'll take your heart away from me. And the first gal Samson asked for is a Philistine. Now, the text says, if you read this, I just want to be... Up front it says the Lord was in it. His parents are like, What are you thinking? It says the Lord's in it. It's not actually clear that God was giving in the desire, but God was was at least working with his desire for that woman to bring about deliverance. You'll see that in the text. But he's marrying a gal, he has a heart for a gal that he shouldn't have otherwise married. God uses it, but that was wouldn't have been ideally God's plan. You also see in Judges 15, when Samson goes to war, the other judges would lead the armies of Israel. And together they defeat the enemy. You never see Samson leading an army. Every time Samson goes to war, it's for a personal vendetta. And it's always by himself. It's always about him. It's not about the nation. It's not about delivering the other Jews. It's about Samson, and he's ticked off, and he's going to go get his own vengeance. Judges 15. In Judges 16, Samson carries on immoral relationships, first with a prostitute from Gaza. There's no ambiguity on this. It's immorality. And then later with another gal, they're both Philistines again. Famously, this one is Delilah. Now you know later, of course, the most famous story about Samson is that he caves to Delilah. She does steal his heart. And he tells her, I'm a Nazirite, my hair's never been cut. And so, of course, while he sleeps, his hair is cut. They capture him, they blind him, and they sort of hook him up like a mule to the millstone. The the elements of Samson's life, they're anything but godly through the whole thing. The whole thing. The position of the judges at the end of the day, at the end of that book, we come to the conclusion the judges aren't going to deliver Israel. The last judge looks just like the people of the land. And as we'll see in a couple more stories, And the people look like... Sorry, I forgot to give you one of these. The people look like the nations around them had as well. So what we're seeing is that Israel's descending into this moral abyss. They're really God's covenant people. Their last judge looks just like the people of the land and the nations around them. And it's clear that the judges aren't going to make it. That we need something or someone better or bigger than the judges if Israel's going to be restored to God in any way that's full. So Samson's end there. So you've got two more stories in the end of the book of Judges, and both of them have to do with the Levite. And basically through these stories, God's going to show us that not only are the judges inadequate for what Israel needs, but the priests are inadequate for what Israel needs. So in Judges 17 and 18, the first, and I'm, I'm rushing through some stories. They're good stories. If you haven't read them, you should. Okay? These are just the high points. So in the first story, there's a guy named Micah. And Micah takes some silver from his mother and he has some gods, some household idols made. And he sets up one of his sons as his household priest and Micah and his household are idol worshippers, just like the people in the land around them. Well, a Levite from Bethlehem, and by the way, these stories keep bringing up the city of Bethlehem. I wonder if that's for a reason. A Levite from Bethlehem is wandering through And Micah realizes, here's a priest. I could have my own priest. And so this priest sells out his priesthood and becomes a priest to the family of Micah to worship and serve the household idols he's had made. Now later, the tribe of Dan, that was down south, sort of south-central, in Samson's day, they move. They're having trouble with the Philistines. So they're going to move up northeast of the other tribes. And as they do, they come along to Micah's house. And they, they see, here's a priest, and he's got his own household idols. And so they tell the priest, hey, why don't you come and be a priest for us? You could be a priest for a whole tribe, the tribe of Dan, instead of for just this family. And so we'll just take this guy's gods, and we'll take you, and you come with us, and you can lead a whole tribe instead of just a family. Won't that be great? He sells out his priesthood again. Now, the thing I want you to see is this from Judges 18. So the story's not good. The priesthood is, is basically just selling out. And remember, God could have said all kinds of things, right, at this day. These stories are picked out because they show us the failure of the priesthood. So what I want you to notice here, though, is uh, look, look who's involved. You don't hear till the end of the story who the priest is. He's just called a Levite from Bethlehem. But at the end of the story, we find out that his name is Jonathan. And he's the son of Gershom son or descendant of Gershom, who is the son of Moses. So First Chronicles 26 tells us that Moses' sons were included in the Levitical priesthood. In other words, the sellout isn't any mere Levite. It's Moses' direct descendant. The priesthood is not going to redeem Israel from its need either. Now when you get into the very last story, 19 through 21, see if I've got this, Yeah. This is probably the grossest story in the book of the Bible for me. Now, the worst evil that's ever occurred on the earth was the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. No one entirely innocent like the Son of God was. But this is a pretty gross story. This is sort of meant to be the low of all lows. And in this story, another Levite, whose bride is from the town of Bethlehem, is moving home to Ephraim, and he's going through Benjamin. He's going to end up going through Benjamin. And it's interesting in the story, um, his servant says, let's stop in Jerusalem for the night. It's getting dark. Let's stop in Jerusalem. But the Levite says, no, no, no. At this time, it's the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem, not Jews. And so the the Levite says, no, they're not like us. They're not from our tribes. We're not going to stay there. We're going to go someplace safe. We're going to go to Gibeah in Benjamin, just up the road. And so they go to the Benjamite city of Gibeah. And a guy takes them in. And when they get inside the guy's house, the host, the guys of the town come and knock on the door. Actually, they bang on the door. Do you remember what they say? Send that man out. We're going to have our way with him. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Have we heard that story before? In Genesis 19. That's exactly... If you look at the stories, it's point by point. It's the same story as Genesis 19... And the destruction of Sodom. And God is showing us that his people have degraded, have degenerated. As low as the cities that he destroyed because of their great wickedness. So the guys of the city bang on the door. And just like Lot had offered his daughters. Get your mind around that. This guy offers his daughter. And he offers the man's wife. Now, The woman is called both in this story, both a concubine, sort of a wife bee, and a wife. She's called both. And so the host offers his daughter and this man's wife to the crowd instead. And the Levite allows his wife to be taken out and abused by the men of Gibeah all night so severely that she dies in the morning. Now, the Levite, it's, the, the story is terrible, right? The Levite, has, he slept through the night while his wife is being savaged. He gets up in the morning. She's lying on the threshold of the house. And he says, get up, let's go. She's dead. There's no mention of loss, remorse, anything. He carries her body home. He cuts her body up into pieces. And then he sends a piece of her body to each of the tribes of Israel to say you guys need to get together and you need to right this wrong. You need to come and you need to confront the Benjamite tribe for what they've done to my wife. So the tribes do, they come together. And they go to Benjamin and they say, hey, give up the men who did this thing, this travesty in the land of Israel. And the Benjamite tribe says, no thanks. And so a civil war ensues. And in that civil war... About 65,000 men lose their lives. So 25, almost the entire tribe of Benjamin, and not just the guys. All the wives, all the kids, they're wiped out by the other tribes of Judah, of Israel. And most of the rest of the losses were from the tribe of Judah, as well as some of the other tribes as well. So you got this great civil war. Now after that, there's so many points to the story, I want to make sure I don't skip the, the important ones. After that, the tribes say, oh no, you know what, we're going to lose a whole tribe. There's 600 Benjamite men left and they have no wives, they have no children, there's no posterity, they're going to live, they're going to die and there'll be no tribe. We'll be short, the nation will be short, the tribe of Benjamin. We can't have this happen. So in this convoluted thinking, they say, where are we going to get women for these Benjamites? And they say, Well, who didn't send anyone to the war? Because we told everybody you gotta come. Well they say, Well, you know what? Jabesh Gilead, a city across the Jordan, they didn't send anyone. So for the sake of the guys who wouldn't give up the wicked men, they go to the city of Jabesh Gilead and they kill every man, woman, boy, and child except the marriageable virgins. They wipe out a city entirely to get the women to give to the wicked men from the tribe of Benjamin. But there aren't enough. So there's still 200 guys without wives, and so they say, well, what are we going to do for them? And so they say, hey, we'll tell you what to do. Every year, right up the road at Shiloh, they have this celebration, and there will be all these available women, and you just go up and you kidnap whoever you want, and then we'll make it right with their parents. That's the last story in the book of Judges. It's pathetic. It's... It's so debased you can't believe it, but that's God's covenant people led by, as it were, an anti-judge and anti-priest. They're not doing anything that God intended them to do. And what we're supposed to see as these stories wind down is, and we'll see this here in just a second, is that they need someone and something else that hasn't arrived yet. So as judges winds down, the the last judge is a fallen judge, an anti-judge. The priests have forsaken Yahweh. They're not leading the people in holiness anymore. Violation of hospitality, violation of marriage, violation of brotherhood in the civil war, violation of the liberty of others. And we understand that Israel's a mess and whatever was available to get them out of the mess is not working. And in in the last four chapters of this book, we, we get the same recurring phrase four times. Because God's getting us ready to see that He had a king in mind. We see that the sin is somehow connected to a lack of a king in Israel. And so four times we get the same phrase. So in Judges 17, 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Judges 18:1 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 19, 1, In those days there was no king in israel and if we miss the point the very last verse in the whole book says in those days there was no king in israel every man did what was right in his own eyes so whatever else is going on with all the sin and the the debased quality of the nation we know that somehow it attaches to the lack of a king now so even as i'm telling that story some of you are shaking your head like we can't believe it right And generally, when we read stories like this, we do. We shake our head, it's painful, which is a good thing, right? It's painful. Um, But I think there's a tendency that we read those stories and think, I'm glad we're not like them. And then I want to say, well, are they that different than than we are? Is is their fallenness qualitatively different than our fallenness? I wonder. Do you think? Uh, my, My understanding of Scripture is not only in the period of the judges does humanity wind down to this very, very base level, but, guys, that the world is winding down very, very much to a very debased level as well. Big picture before Jesus comes. That just as David comes in to save a debased nation, Jesus the Messiah comes back to save a debased earth. Same thing. That our humanity, we're not going up, we're going down. Technology may lead us up. Industry and science, medicine may lead us up in lifestyle but morally I, i believe the scriptures show that we are degenerating over time we're not getting better we're no different qualitatively than the people in these stories and let me just give you if you're not thoroughly depressed you guys look you're feeling it aren't you you're feeling the story yeah so let me let me help by giving you a little bit more of the same on our own times so if you think just about what's true in our day and age so Judges failing, priesthood failing, hospitality failing, betrayal of relationships, marriage and otherwise. Guys, you see exactly the same things going on today. And it's not just true. We tend to focus on our own neighborhood, the United States. It is true here, but it's not, it's not true just here. These things are going on all over the planet. But we just celebrated through a series the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation Right? The reclamation of the gospel that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? To God's glory alone, on the validity or the truth claims of Scripture alone. But what's going on in the same year that this stuff's going on and that we're remembering this? Another huge list of Protestant denomination and churches signed on to the Joint Declaration of Justification that was initiated between the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran churches a decade or two ago. In other words, they've given up the gospel. They've said that Roman Catholics, non-gospel, and us are on the same page. And I won't belabor the point today, what Roman Catholicism teaches is not the gospel. It's an anti-gospel. But all these churches are signing on. They're Protestant churches. They are a form, if you will, of the priesthood. Now we know today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and you are a priest. 1 Peter says, we're a household of God. We're royalty royalty. We are priests, but these are the leaders of these other priesthood, if you will, and they're saying we believe in a non-gospel. But guys, it gets worse because within evangelicalism, and that's our neighborhood, right? We're evangelicals. The term is kind of losing its meaning, but in evangelical circles today, and you've heard this from me before because I think it's a, a bellwether of where the professing church is going, evangelical academics the guys who edit the Bibles you read, the guys who are teaching in conservative evangelical seminaries, not all of them, but many prominent of them, they're saying that there's no historical literary reality to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now you may say that's not a big deal, but but remember where this leads you. When Jesus refers to Adam or Adam and Eve or the flood, he's referring to a myth. When Paul comments on the first Adam in Romans 5, he's referring to a lie. There is no first Adam. When 2 Peter talks about a worldwide flood, he's lying because there is no flood. And that's what these guys are saying. And what they've said is, we still believe the Bible is true, but it's just true in this way. And when you ask them, well, what do you do about it? Now Jesus is he's putting out a lie. This is a fable. When He talks about Adam and Eve or the flood, they say, no, no. God was accommodating the ignorance of the people of the time. He was accommodating their ignorance. What they said isn't true, but God was accommodating their ignorance. That's evangelical leaders today. That's not Protestant denominations we're disconnected from. Those are folks that you and I are connected to, at least through literature and the literature that affects the evangelical church. But hospitality has fallen on hard times too. This used to be one of the models of godliness throughout the old testament you'll see is simply hospitality willing to show love to others whether that's international students whether that's neighbors down the street i think there's an elevated sense of danger oftentimes for us we feel fearful about hospitality and by the way you see that same element in those stories in judges there's fear the guy that brings the levite and his wife in he knows what's going to happen to them if they stay out in that city fearfulness hospitality falling on hard times Guys, there's wars going on today. You know that war in Syria displaced more people than World War II. About 12 million people were displaced by the war in Syria. Many of those were Christians. You've got factions within the same religion killing each other just like the tribes in Israel were killing each other. Same thing. Human trafficking, just thinking of kidnapping, you know, human trafficking is a $150 billion a year business worldwide. And guys, oftentimes, you know who is selling those children usually into slavery and servitude? It's their relatives. It's their families. So if we look at the, at the book of Judges and think, God bless us, we're in better times, we've got a work of fiction in front of our eyes. It's not just that we don't know where we are or where we're going. We're, we've got a work of fiction that we're reading because exactly the same points that were going on in the book of Judges, they're true with us today. Our humanity is as fallen as they were then. I won't read it for the sake of time, but 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 through 5, talks about what our humanity will be like before Jesus appearing. And it's just this debased list of pride and arrogance and brutality and ungodliness. So that the more we, we get closer to the appearing of Jesus, the more we expect these seems to be true just as... The more base and fallen we saw the nation of Israel become, we knew we were closer to the king God promised. That king would be, of course, the person of David. Now, if we're not careful, what we end up doing, guys, is we mistake the book in front of our eyes. We're in a a bus. We're in the family van. We're going down the road. The destination is set. It's the appearing of Christ. It's His kingdom. It's His eternal new heavens and new earth. That's where we're going. But we're reading the book. We're getting caught up in our own times and what's going on in front of our face. Immediate. And some of that's necessary, of course. But we're forgetting where we're at. And what we do, we tend to minimize and think that the book in front of our face, our life, is all that's God's doing. We lose track that we're part of a much, much bigger story. And our destination is more glorious than what we've got going on in front of us today. Now we know... We know that in history, in the books that we'll be going through, David's the promised king. David's the king God's waiting to give to the nation, to raise them up. David's a guy after God's own heart, right? But as you read his story, it's also quite evident that David's also a bit like the people around him, isn't he? Because David's fallen also. And David needs a savior, king, to lead him. And God gives promises to David. David. Second Samuel 7, that through his own physical line, an ultimate king would come. And we know it's not Solomon, though Solomon's a picture of him. But that one day, his descendant would start an eternal kingdom that would never end. So David's not the end of the road. David's a picture. David's supposed to remind us that God has an ultimate messianic king. Anointed, chosen king that's going to make all life, if you will, better. He's going to raise us out of our depravity. He's going to establish his kingdom and eventually his eternal kingdom in a new heaven and new earth. So I'm bringing this up now because as we head to Christmas, we're going to be thinking about the incarnation, which is fine. But it's not enough. That what we see is the norm. We're supposed to be looking at the destination. Not back where we were, unless we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, Even when we do that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're celebrating the Lord in the Lord's Supper until He comes. It's still a forward look. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's where our hearts should be. So as Christmas season's coming upon us, let's be thinking about where we're going, not just where we've been. Listen to just a few verses. And I could have picked uh, four or five times this number. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 says as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Corinthians had just come to Christ, and Paul says they're characterized by waiting. And it says the revealing, it's apocalypsis, it's the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus at His appearing. That's what they're waiting for. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it's so graphic. Paul there says to the Thessalonians, right? these were just pagans. These were like the tribes around Israel. They hadn't known God. They weren't in a relationship with Yahweh. But it says, you turn to God from idols. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And when you read 2 Thessalonians, you realize they took it so seriously, they unwisely, foolishly quit their jobs because they know Jesus is coming. And Paul says, well, go back to work. You know, when when he comes, you'll get off work, but don't stop working before then. They took it so seriously, they, they turned away from idols to the living and true God to wait for his son from heaven. He says there, Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. Remember, when Jesus comes, his appearing, he's going to end up coming not as the little lowly king, the suffering servant on a donkey. He's coming on a war horse, and he's coming as a mighty king. Titus 2 says that we're waiting for our blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Guys, this is the thing. If your lives and mine aren't characterized by a forward look, think of the windshield of your vacation van car moving down the road, of a forward look, we're missing it. And generally what that means is our hearts are so filled with the story of our life, the book in front of our face, that they're not set on God and God's things. We had a talk in the men's advance, which the key word was from Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Your heart determines where your life is going. And what determines what fills your heart? It's where you set your eyes. It's where you set your focus. You'll find that you have affections for the things you look to, you focus on. And the reason for many of us why our faith is so shallow and our lives are so indifferent from the lives of the people around us is because our hearts, because our eyes, aren't looking to the place God's taking us. We're not looking for Jesus to return. We're saying it's okay if you come sometime soon, Lord. The world needs you. But let me do this first. Let me do that first. Our hearts aren't on Christ and His appearing as Scripture tells us they should be. We're no different than the guys in the days of Judges. We're waiting for the King to come and establish His kingdom. Now, when Kathy and I go on vacation, we did this last summer as well. To call, it's always to Colorado, by the way. It's always to the Rocky Mountains. Other places are okay in their secondary, sort of lower rate right way. But the, the Rockies are the place to be. But you know, when Kath and I drive out, we prefer to drive rather than flying. It's just, I think, a bit more civilized. We have a good time in the car. You know, I'm sorry. You're treated like cattle to get on a plane. Are you, have you ever seen cattle go through feedlots and the chutes? That's an airport. I mean, you're just treated like cattle. Stand here, put your hand. You're looking at my what? What? You know, when you get those cattle in a chute and they don't know that something presses against them and then they they feel something burn on their backside. Their hair's on fire. You've just branded them. Anyway, my take is airports are like cattle chutes. So if I don't have to fly, I don't. So driving is more civilized. Trains are too also. But anyway, uh, so we listen to books. And we talk, talk about our plans, talk about anything. We pray. We're looking out the windshield. Guys, we enjoy the ride through western Kansas. Where's Denise? Amen, right? Amen. Uh, the mountains are God's country, but Kansas is close. It's right there. It's right next to it. So, uh, but, but when Mike's driving through Kansas and eastern Colorado, by the way, is more desolate than western Kansas. Driving through eastern Colorado, what am I thinking about? We're having a great time. It's not like the drive is bad. We're having a great time. But I'm looking down the road. I'm looking for those mountains. I've got my eyes through the windshield. I'm looking for the place We're going to. And because of that, my mind is also on that. You know what? I'm thinking of cool mountain air. When we went up this last time, I kid you not, pulled right off Highway 40, there's a waterfall right there. We got off. We got Jordy a drink. And you know the, the aerosol from the waterfall spray? It was filled with the aroma of pines and spruce. It was like, I'm here. We're here. It was great. That's what I'm thinking about. Starry nights, cool temps. That's what I'm thinking about. See, that's filling my mind because my eyes are set on the place I'm going. And as we're thinking about Christmas season this year, give a thought more than the incarnation, which is lovely, to the place our hearts are supposed to be engaged, that we're supposed to see from what's going on around us and from the promises God's already given us. That the end of the road is not the book in front of our faces. It's Jesus appearing. It's his kingdom. And it's his setting up his eternal kingdom where truth and righteousness and peace and joy are the norm, unmitigated, forever and ever. Amen. That's what we're headed for. So we want to take our books down. We want to look out the windshield to the place God is taking us. Guys, if you would, the worship team's going to come up now. And if you would, sorry, I've run a little long. Imagine that. If you would stand as they come up and let's just uh, close by praying this together, would you? You remember when the disciples asked Jesus, hey, show us how to pray. This is what he said. This is God's will. This is God's will for you and for me. Let's pray this, these lines together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.